Hey everybody, this is Nick Padiak. You're listening to I'll Be Damned. Uh, welcome, welcome back. It's been a while. Uh, the last last uh, episode that I released was actually a three-parter. It was with Walter Guzzi, the 100-year-old World War II veteran, fought in the Battle of the Bulge, lived a wonderful life. I shouldn't say lived. He has lived. He's still alive. Uh, about to turn 101. If you can believe that. Uh, That was a really great uh, three-part episode. I I hope that you go back and check that out if you have not done so. Uh, This week, we have Jason Glombicki on the podcast. He is a Lutheran pastor. Uh, Before we get to that, though, I want to invite you to listen to my other podcast. I started another one since since I released the the Walter um, Guzzi podcast. Uh, This one is called Informer. It is my friend Kevin and I. Kevin is a is a lawyer for the federal government. Uh, he and I uh, team up to explain what's going on here with our politics. It is uh, what we call information without conclusion. Uh, no hot takes or any of that stuff. It's it's things like um, people are saying Donald Trump is violating the congressional. No, the the Presidential Records Act. Okay, so what is the Presidential Records Act? We go into that. We explain what that is. Kevin, as a lawyer, will tell you what that is. I, as a uh, journalist slash explainer type person, will say, Kevin, that doesn't make any sense. Say it like a normal human being. Uh, we go through that. There's a lot of profanity. There's there are some jokes. It's not as dry as it sounds. I promise, and uh, we're we're really proud of it. So uh, I'd love you to check that out. It's on iTunes. It's on Stitcher. Uh, Google Play. It's also at our website, informerpod.com. And we have a Twitter account. It's uh, at informer underscore pod. And speaking of Twitter, if you want to get a hold of me, I am on Twitter at npadiak. My website is nicholaspadiak.com. Would love to hear from you or to connect with you. Uh, All right. So this week, Jason, Jason Glombicki, he and I went to college together. We actually uh, traveled together in Europe. We we had a European term at, at Augustana College, and both Jason and I went on there. We were actually roommates in Paris. Uh, he has since moved on to become a pastor at Wicker Park Lutheran Church here in Chicago. Uh, it was a really fun conversation for me. I, I didn't grow up uh, religious. I, I, I have no religion to this day, uh, but I like talking about it. And so Jason, Jason was a good person to do that with. So uh, thanks, as always, to Matt Pickett for the I'll Be Damned theme song. He also does a killer theme song for Informer, so there's another plug to check that one out. And to Alex Johnson for the uh, I'll Be Damned cover art. And uh, here it is. Here's my talk with Jason Glombicki. What is this church called? Wicker Park Lutheran Church. Right now. Built in 1902. 1906. Six? 1906, yeah. That's bad, I mean, technically, it's Wicker Park Evangelical Lutheran Church of Chicago. They were trying to be real concise yeah. when they uh, came up with the term. Mm-hmm. How long have you been here? Oh, just over three years now. Wow. Since, what, 2013? December 2013? So. This Wait, is this your first church gig? Yeah, so this is my first congregational call. Um, is, is how, is how we officially put sure. it, you know, but yeah, church gig. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. First church gig. Yeah. So first call. Um, and then before that I was working as a hospital chaplain in, uh, New Haven, Connecticut. So that sounds rough. Um, that was, yeah, it was mainly pediatrics and palliative care oh. and acute care for elderly. So dementia and Alzheimer's. So wow. yeah. is, is that something gamut. you wanted to get into? Like, was that, was that a plan for you to go into that sort of 
palliative care, that kind of thing. So hospital chaplaincy was what I was more drawn to. So so in undergrad, I was uh, religion, biology, and pre-medicine. And when I decided not Such to go... overachiever. <laughs> I know, right? Which, yeah, it's really fun. I had not heard of anybody else who had done like triple major until yeah. I was talking with the church musician on Sunday and found out he was also a triple major with pre-med. Wow. Um, so anyway, but yeah, he or I was um, looking to go to seminary or finally feeling like I would reluctantly go to seminary because they were going to give me full tuition. So I was like, well, hmm. you know, I'll go do this and thought that kind of chaplaincy would be that intersection point between religion, biology and pre-medicine that could kind of hold it all together. So um, I wanted to go into chaplaincy work and I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, it was really rough stuff, um, especially the the pediatrics yeah. Uh, you know, lots of uh, baptizing babies who didn't make it, you know, stillbirths or um, otherwise. And uh, so, yeah, tough stuff. But also the resiliency of um, especially pediatric patients was just outstanding. I mean, there was this one, um, it was a little girl who came in. She's what we call the full trauma. So like the worst of the worst. And she had, it was uh, like a three drawer um uh, what do you call it? A dresser that had a big, huge tube TV on top of it. Oh. And so, of course, you know, she was, I think, three years old and pulled on the dresser. And so the tube, the TV, the huge TV fell right on her head. <sighs> um, and so she came in, like, was not breathing, was not doing well at all. And, uh, you know, I remember being there when her parents um, arrived with her and just like, they were completely distraught and understandably so, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, within, I think, like three, four, five weeks, she was up now running around the whole place and, you know, and ended up being discharged just totally fine. And so just amazing how, like, our bodies, especially at such a young age, can, can bounce back. Yeah. Um, is incredible. Wow. So I guess I don't know much about um, hospital chaplaincy. Is that... I guess I just think of that as like, somebody's dying, call the priest. You know, like that's what you see in movies <laughs> yeah. and on TV and stuff. But I assume that that's not everything that you do. You know, you must be helping families and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so sometimes it is kind of, you know, oh, well, this person is getting close to the, the end of their life. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we want a priest to come in and perform um, uh, anointing of the sick is technically what it's called, but lots of people call it last rites, mm. um, the old term. And so some of it's, yeah, oh, we want somebody to come and pray or kind of sit with the family. But then it's also um, uh, more of kind of support, like similar to a social worker, but we're less like there's certain things like things that we're going to provide or resources we're going to connect you to, which would be like a social worker. It's more of um, a ministry of presence is kind of what we would say as chaplains. So we're more there without an agenda to be present, to listen to people, to hear what they're saying, but then also on some level to, to be an advocate as well. So usually advocating with doctors and nurses um, for a sense of humanity in there. Cause sometimes it's just like so much, so scientific. And so by, by the rule and this, is what we got to do so quickly and just reminding people who right Rightfully so. I want them to be scientific and, and thinking logically and going through that, but reminding them of the human element um, of it all. And so that's kind of a lot of what chaplaincy work does between the full traumas that are coming in or the, even the modified traumas that come in where it's like car crash or gunshot wound or, you know, you know somebody who's getting CPR um, on the scene, you know, cardiac arrest or something. We would respond to those to being with more of the family, to be present with them and sometimes 
very deep theological questions come up. You know, why is, you know, the theodicy questions? Why is God calling? You know, why is, why is this happening? You know, why is suffering in the world? What is, what is going on? Um, so to allow people to process some of that. But then also on the kind of the normal um, day-to-day unit when there's not somebody dying or a tragedy happening, then just kind of stopping by and saying, hey, you know, it looks like you've been in here a while. How, how are things going, you know? Yeah. You know, and then hearing what they bring to the table and running with that. So it could be family issues. It could be their issues with God in the past. It could be a whole variety of different things. Sometimes just like, I hate the food here. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, I, I probably would hate the food here too if I was only getting this. But. Yeah. So, okay. I'm interested in a few things here. First of all, you, you mentioned that you would be sort of advocating for the human element, uh, lobbying for the human element on behalf of these patients yeah. toward these, uh, uh healthcare workers. What does that look like? Are you like in the room with them saying, no, hang on, remember this is a person or do you go to them separately? What, you know, how does that practically work? Yeah. So it could be a whole variety of different things in kind of a palliative, in the palliative care setting, we actually would have team meetings every morning. Um, so on the team would be, um, a chaplain, a social worker, um, a, um, uh, like a nurse practitioner or a licensed, um, nurse, some kind of nurse something, but then doctors. And so like, it's the whole team kind of coming together. And so, you know, the doctors are talking about what kind of drugs and stuff like that from their perspective. And social work is talking about like, well, what kind of, you know, services, hospice services are we going to get them connected with? And then we would bring up, you know, kind of some of uh, the religious or or kind of human element of like, well, what are the larger questions that the family is talking about, their individual is talking about, or what, what are the important things as they're getting closer to death that they want to surround themselves with? What are the things that really drive them and give them meaning and passion. Um, and so what are the ways that we can be compassionate and help create those systems of meaning um, in a place that's very foreign, like a hospital often is? Mm. And so, um, yeah. So sometimes it's in that team environment. And then sometimes it is, you know, you kind of walk in the room and you have this long conversation for an hour and then you go and try to track down the doctor, you page them, you, you know, write up notes in the, in the chart or you're talking to the nurse and you're like, hey, they mentioned X, Y, and Z, like what's kind of going on with this? Like, um, so it kind of depends on the situation. Were the, uh, doctors and nurses by and large accepting of that sort of feedback? Yeah. For the most part, I, I, I would say that they were, um, espe- so especially palliative care because that's right before kind of, um, generally before they're being transferred to hospice or before they're kind of, um, sometimes they wouldn't even make it to hospice, but kind of end of life, kind of comfort care there. There's definitely a more kind of spiritual side to that of saying, yeah, like as, as a, uh, scientific community, as doctors, we've tried to do everything that we possibly can. And we've, we've done the very best that we can, but ultimately like part of life is also death. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, kind of owning that. So, was your seminary education, did that set you up specifically for that kind of job? Like you mentioned the so, sort of social work aspect of it. Is that, was that in your wheelhouse or were you just kind of swimming? Yeah. So part of the process, at least in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, so the ELCA, which is what I'm a part of, the denomination, to be ordained in that church, you have to do one unit of what we call clinical pastoral education, Hmm. uh, CPE for short. And so what you do with that is you spend a variety of time working in um, 
some kind of uh, diverse setting that could range from most of the time it's hospital, but it could be, I had some friends who like, um, there was uh, in New York, there is a, um, an organization that works with uh, like, people who work on ships who kind of come in like ship shipmen. I don't know what you call them, but they kind of come in and they're stationed there for a while. And so they're like hospital chaplains to them. Some people are working in prisons, some people work in nursing homes. Um, but it's kind of, uh, an opportunity for you to kind of hone your pastoral care skills of kind of having deep conversations with people in these transitional moments. Um, and also figuring out a lot more about yourself. Um, so, you know, sometimes you, when you walk into a room as a, as a pastor or even as a person, like it's more about what's going on in that person's life than it's actually anything to do with you. It's more mm-hmm. of what they're processing or what you're triggering. Um, so um, transference and counter-transference is kind of what we call it. So kind of what, what uh, we, we understand of them, kind of like, oh, this person reminds me of you know, Nick, or this reminds me of somebody in my past. And this is how that person in the past treated me. And so I'm likely to interact with them because I perceive something um, or transference kind of what they're putting on us. Right. So when we walk in the room, unbeknownst to them, we've never met them, but I might remind them of someone of their past for whatever reason, or me just being a, a person of faith, a chaplain automatically can carry just a ton of baggage. And so might not be against me as person. It's mm-hmm. not against Jason Glumbicky, but it very well could be against Christianity as a whole. So how do you how do you deal with that and separate yourself separate yourself um, out from what's going on in the person's head? And so, what was your what was the acronym CPE? CPE. CPE. Yeah. What was yours? Where was that? So um, my first unit of CPE was in um, Philadelphia. It was at Jefferson uh, Hospital, and so there um, I was on the um, neurological intensive care unit. Um, so the NICU and so lots of like brain aneurysms, you know, so people are just having a good time. They're out at a barbecue, all of a sudden kind of pops. And then all of a sudden they're being flown there and family comes and it's like, yeah, um, we're sorry to to say that your loved one has died already. And that's kind of cause there's, you know, um, brain death is a type of death, you know, your brain is dead, but the body organs are still kind of going and stuff like that. And so that's always a hard one for people to get, Oh, but like, you know, the breathing machine is there. Like if we just give him more time, he's going to let, and it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Like mm-hmm. there's two different types. And so that's the really hard, really, really hard unit. So the highest mortality rate of any unit is at that hospital at that time was the neurological intensive care unit. And then I was also on a step-down unit. So basically people recovering from um, medical or surgical um, kind of inpatient time. So they were moving from, usually from like an ICU to a step-down and then discharge. So gotcha. that's, you know, much easier yeah, in I the mean... whole scheme of things. <laughs> but. Uh, so you said that the CPEs were an opportunity to learn about yourself. So what did, what did you learn about yourself in that time? Yeah, so so I did. So the first unit that I did at at Jefferson Col- at Jefferson University Hospital System, and then I did three more units. That oh. was my time when I was at in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So that was what we call a residency. So now I'm board certifiable as a chaplain. So with a bunch of hours, so kind of a little bit different. And you kind of emphasize, you know, some different things, honing pastoral care skills. Um, I'm trying to think. So the first unit that I did at Jefferson university hospital system, what kind of things did I learn? I don't even remember what goals 
I had at that point. <laughs> Clearly, it was transformational. <laughs> um, I mean, more just like honing, like getting used to like walking into rooms and praying with people was usually a lot of the goals. Um, at that point, I the cohort that we had was was very interesting. So you're also with other people who who are um, in your CPE cohort. So I think we had like eight different people. Um, and so I think if I remember correctly, all seven of the other people were also some sort of Christian. No, we had six who were identifying as Christian and one who was Unitarian and she didn't identify as Christian. So some of, some of what you learn is like even the dynamics of like within the small group of how you all kind of interact. And, Mm -hmm. um, there was this, this one thing that we had to do where it was just kind of like this open forum. I forget what we called it, but it was just like this open time for conversation. And immediately the first day, this this lady one of the girls in my cohort turns to another it was a friend of mine who actually went to the seminar that i was at and he had dreads and (laughs) it was right at the beginning and she just turns right to him and says i think dreads are really unprofessional and turns right back and then it was like so everybody's kind of looking around and then like I don't like how you just talk to him. And then so like everybody and literally for like the next uh, out of the 10 weeks, I think there was for six weeks, we talked about how she said this one, <laughs> this one statement about his dreads. And it was just so some of it is a little bit like, wow, like that. How long can you talk about one statement, yeah. you know, on dreads? But then it snowballs and other things. So you learn like interpersonal dynamics and like then people try to like push you a little bit more sometimes of like, Oh, well, why aren't you chiming in? Or like, why are you chiming mm-hmm. in so much? And kind of just getting you to like be more self-reflective, um, as the ways that you interact. But I think one of the, one of the big things for me in that particular unit, is I started learning about this thing called the Enneagram, um, have you ever heard of the Enneagram? Mm-hmm. So it's, have you heard of Myers-Briggs? Yes. Um, so that's, you know, kind of personality scale. So Enneagram, mm-hmm. It's kind of like that, but not really. So there's nine different numbers. Um, and so it's a personality type um, uh, kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it? Assessment? Profile or, assessment. Okay. Yeah, 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 you don't really take an assessment. You kind of more self-identify, which is interesting okay. about it. But it's more focused on like motivations. And so what is like your core motivation um, in your life? And then when you're on an unhealthy level, how does that kind of play itself out. And when you're on kind of a healthy, uh, kind of well-balanced place, what are like um, the, the best things that could kind of be held up from that? And so one of the things uh, when I was kind of going through that is kind of narrowing in on uh, a number three. So a number three is an achiever. So over and over and over again, what drives me or what I discovered uh, that, drived, uh, that drives my essence is trying to, to get people to be like, oh, wow, he is really great. You know, mm-hmm. Jason knows how to do things really well. And I'm really impressed by everything that he can accomplish and get done, you know, like triple majors and, you know, stuff like that. So like, that's what drives me. But then that doesn't always, um, that doesn't always give me a sense of like accomplishment or even it's not always something that I necessarily want because I'm always just seeking the kind of feedback and the, the, the honor that kind of goes along with, um, the achievement that that I'm after. So it's this constant, constant achieving. And so then, you know, at, at your best, you know, you can like motivate other people and get people and bring people together and kind of kind of do things. But then at your worst, when you're unbalanced and stressed and stuff like that, you become egotistical and all about yourself and just very selfish. And so 
trying to find the whole the whole idea of the enneagram is to be aware of that so you can keep yourself in such a balance that um, you can can be healthy in your motivations. And so that's part of what you were sort of working on for yourself during your CPE. Well, I I mean when I walked into it, I had no idea that that was going to come from it. But one of our didactics was about the enneagram, and so it's kind of okay. this this own discovery of like, oh, well, like why am I in seminary? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is yeah. this something that actually brings me fulfillment and enjoyment or am I doing this for other people? Mm-hmm. Um, so. And so is, is that something that you still sort of, I wouldn't say struggle with, but that you deal with? Is that sort of number three, you know? Yeah. Or? I mean, on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, all the time, that's something to kind of uh, constantly be aware of. I mean, even here at the church, it's like, all right, I want... Even just the the past uh, few weeks, just thinking about Easter coming up, which is like our big day, right? <laughs> um, and so, like, wanting Easter to be perfect. And we've had record attendance for the past three Easters. And so, like, in my head, I'm like, this has to be the biggest attendance. And it has to be great. And everything must be in order. And so, like, yeah, if that all turns out well and the narrative plays out, well, great. Then, like, I've lived into my three. But if not, then I can get into this, like, really um, kind of depressive state of just feeling down and, like, wow, I'm this, like, this horrible person and I'm doing nothing right. And so constantly reframing it to remind myself that it's not always about numbers and perfection, yeah. um, but that there's there's something something broader behind that. And so then that kind of feeds into um, anxiety as well, right? Because it's like, oh, well, I need to make sure this is perfect and this is perfect and this is perfect. And um, perfectionism kind of then takes over and then it can just like steamroll everyone around you. So in this moment where we're supposed to be talking about like new life and resurrection, <laughs> it's actually just like killing everyone secretly. So I've got to constantly keep that in the back of my head and uh, check myself. And sometimes it's even, um, you know, the staff members, I try to let them know like, okay, this is the tendency that I have in this moment. So like, if you're seeing this, feel free, call me out. Yeah. yeah. Just like, let me know. Like, cause sometimes I need to go and take a quick chill pill by myself <laughs> and cool off and remember the larger picture of all of it. And that's in, in theory, what I try to help others see is this larger picture. And so if I'm getting all narrow minded and, and narrowing in on one thing that I'm, I'm missing the larger picture. Yeah. Yeah. Now you mentioned something earlier, the word theodicy. Yeah. I knew what is that? Yep. That. <laughs> what yeah, is that? Um, so theodicy. Great. Well, if, if any theologians are listening, I'm probably going to really screw this up, but so, I'm sure there are no theologians. That are listening. <laughs> <laughs> so theodicy is kind of, uh, so Theo being, um, God, right. So like mm-hmm. theology. So like theology is like the study of God. Um, so theodicy is kind of looking at, um, kind of the understanding of how God and like suffering all kind of hold together. So, and yeah, I hope that I'm getting this right. Um, but I'm suffering is definitely an element of it, but sometimes we start thinking about like, well, if God is all good and all benevolent, then how can God allow suffering to exist in the world? So how can you hold all these different principles? So then you either need to let go of God being all powerful or all good to then say God can allow suffering to happen. Or we can say um, that, um, you know, God doesn't, you know, God causes suffering, right? Is kind of the other flip side of that. So if he is all powerful and, and, and all knowing and all good, then he allows suffering to happen, but then he can't be all good. So sometimes God is not all good. Um, God is sometimes causing suffering. And so this is kind of like that, that question that constantly goes around. Why, why do bad things happen to good people? Mm -hmm. And that's called theodicy. I never knew that. So where, where do you land on that? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I think, uh, an essential aspect of God is that God 
um, in kind of my understanding of, of what God is. God is constant goodness. It's kind of good energy, and from good energy is love. And so God in no way can uh, be directly um, related or can be causing pain or suffering to happen. So pain and suffering are just a part of what it means to be human. It just kind of happens. And so um, like the essence of love or kind of that positive energy that is God can also work through things that are painful and work through suffering as well and be present kind of in that moment, but doesn't need to be causing it. Um, so we can see kind of the presence of God in those painful moments, but that doesn't mean that God caused the pain and the suffering. Hmm. So I'm curious when you say, I mean, you, you sort of gave a, a synopsis of what you think God is when you uh, picture God. Is it the guy with the white beard in the sky? Is that what you <laughs> No, Not anymore. Okay. That, that, that was, that was like uh, probably seven year old, eight year old <laughs> Jesus. Right. Yeah. And like at that point, concrete thinking stage so there i am you know literally thinking this is a man he's got a long beard sitting on a cloud you know looking down at us and i need to make sure that i don't really tick off god because then god's gonna maybe smite me or you know cause bad things to happen to me right so that was that was like early view of god so this is actually this is kind of a really interesting exercise i have a spiritual um uh spiritual director and the very first spiritual director that i had um absolutely outstanding and she one of the first exercises that we did was say okay like what is your earliest memory of who god is like what was god to you in your in your early childhood and then like trace that like actually come up with this whole path of like how you went from there to where you are today and how you understand god um in that and so um yeah i think early on that was god for Mm -hmm. me but not really where I am with God today. So can you give me that uh, sort of synopsis, how you got from, can you trace that for us? I I can try to. Yeah. So I think, I think, so it goes from, um, I wish I had my little piece of paper in front of me that I wrote down a couple (laughs) of years ago. But so, so God as like this, um, you know, potentially vengeful kind of uh, person, like very much like a person, like this concrete person, Um, I think then kind of started morphing as I got older from, and some of that is just like where we, where I was developmentally, right? This concrete and the church doesn't always do the best job of, of helping with that because, you know, we sit down kids and we have them come up with, you know, we create Jesus as the good shepherd. And so then we think Mm -hmm. Jesus is a shepherd. And then we talk about how Jesus is like a mother hen, but in my concrete thinking, I think Jesus is a hen. So now Jesus has like wings and you're just like, okay, this is really weird. And so I think then like conceptually because of like the gender identity that God seemed to have um, in the context that I was brought up in, God became this like powerful man, right? Would be kind of the next thing. So it's not necessarily like floating up in this cloud, but it's like this, this powerful man that like oversees all things and then kind of morphs its way into like Jesus. So it's like this powerful Jesus guy that definitely has a penis who's kind of like walking (laughs) around. And if you don't have a penis, then apparently you're not close enough to God. So, you know, that was always like, well, men are always better than women. And so and that was at least from my perspective as a young child and growing up in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, which tends to be a bit more um, biblically uh, literalist um, in the ways that they understand the Bible 
definitely there's a lot of, like God is always a he. So it's always this gender kind of component. And so uh, definitely stepped into the kind of that gender binary and that there is this, this very clear, um, w- like you can, you can discover through the Bible the exact way um, that God wants you to live was kind of, so then, then it became, okay, the number three side of me kind of kicks in, right? And saying, okay, how can I make sure that I'm living in the exact right way um, to, so that like, I don't make God angry. Um, And although, you know, God is also Jesus and, you know, he's, he was nice and, you know, he loves us. Jesus loves me, all this other stuff. There was still like this, this vengeful, I need to make sure I do everything right um, kind of uh, component. And then I think a- as I started going through college, and I, th- I think I entered college with a similar mindset to that, but I started going through college and really started questioning. Um, and some of that has to do with like the, the question of like theodicy and suffering, mm-hmm. but started questioning this particular interpretation um, of God. First of all, thinking about God as like a gendered being, as like God, he, and I still fall into that. Like even before we got into this conversation, I... <laughs> was saying God and I said he and so I still definitely fall um, back into that um, kind of received theology instead of my learned theology Um, and so I will uh, so like breaking God out of this gender binary and saying oh no God is beyond gender God is is, is so much more beyond that Um, and then also just like exploring like what are the implications of kind of religious belief and how that plays out in society and saying like we don't like social um, issues aren't separate from our understanding of God and if the essence of God um, is love if God is love and that everything about um Christ's, um, Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection is all about communicating love, then the way that we live out our social principles should be revolving around love. Um, and so I think as I continue to kind of um, develop, love is a central aspect of that. But I don't, like, God to me is this, like, at this point, and it's still going to, like, grow and develop over mm-hmm. time, but is like this, this, some people might describe it as, like, energy but it's like this it's just like this um constant creating force um that and it doesn't and not in the sense of like oh there was like creation of like seven days and stuff like this but there's like uh, you know i've big bang yeah probably a big bang like (laughs) evolution yeah 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 i'm pretty sure there's evolution yeah Mm -hmm. i I get behind that but like that the god is this this life source this energy that constantly helps things being made new over and over and over again, constantly transforming all of creation um, to, you know, an essence of eternal life that we can keep living and living and living. And even so um, uh, for kind of in the Hebrew scriptures, when we think about Judaism, like eternal life wasn't like this place that we go to. It isn't like heaven that we're going to, but it's that we can constantly pass on our genes, that we can constantly have um, children that continue to live, and we live on through the children. So we set mm. up a world where eternal life can be. It's not this far-off essence, but it's the here and now. Um, and so I think that a, a lot of what Christianity compels me to do is more about our life now. And the question of like heaven or hell isn't one that, I particularly gravitate towards because I think it's more about um, our life now and how we can live out the love and values and use that creative energy um, that God is that is revealed through Jesus Christ that like this is a, a, a amazing example of what 
the essence of God looks like in human form, this energy lived out, this sacrificial love, um, but also this like complete compassion and understanding that, you know, humanity and who we are as people goes across all sorts of um, boundaries of gender um, and nationality and religion um, and any place that we want to kind of draw a dividing line. Anytime that we want to say this is on the outside um, from where I am, I think we're often going to find God on the other side. And so we want to be very careful with how we draw those lines because I think think that God is always transcending those lines and inspiring um, newness and new life. So and I noticed you have a refugees welcome sign out front. We do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, WPLC welcomes refugees. Which seems to be speaking to what you were just speaking to. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think that that's uh I think it's really important. And we see that throughout the, the Bible over and over again. Like hospitality um is, is so so important over and over again. A lot of people want to take for example like Sodom and Gomorrah. They always want to blame like uh you know gays on Sodom and Gomorrah, but like the real issue was actually being inhospitable. Like that's exactly why Sodom and Gomorrah got borne down because they weren't being hosp- hospitable to the foreigners, to the outsiders. Um and so I think we need to be reminded over and over again. And this is where Christianity is helpful for me because the Israelites were outsiders. They were the ones who were oppressed in Egypt. They were the ones who were the outsiders. They were the ones um, who were being trampled upon. And so then they get a chance. They are set free from Egypt and they go to Cana um, and they go to this new land. And then in some ways they become the oppressors. And so we constantly have to be reminding ourselves when we're in the state of privilege that we too um, don't always have, aren't always afforded the opportunity to have that privilege that our skin color or our gender um, or our nationality brings with it. And so that's why I also think traveling is really important. Um, travel is good to get us out of that mindset um, and, and remind ourselves that we too come from oppressed people. And so we need to show that love um, and that grace and uh, welcome yeah. in that. So. Now, this is a, I think this is sort of a um, like a base question, uh, and and it, it might even be I don't know kind of gauche to ask, but do you 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 know you're you're referring to a lot of these stories from the Bible? You you obviously have a, a deep knowledge of it. Uh, do you see these? Do you consider these to be a historical fact, or do you treat them as allegory? Yeah. So, um, I, yeah. So. One is actually back at Augustana, where we both went to college. Mm -hmm. Go Vikings. Um, Go Vikings. Um, And don't forget a day of giving is coming up soon, so make sure to turn in your $10 for (laughs) your year. Um, There was a a professor, Dr. Hawk, who liked to talk a lot about there's a difference between being historically accurate and actually being like truthful or having fact in it, right? So truth um, and fact can be different than being historically accurate. So do I believe that the Bible is historically accurate? No. We, I think it's very clear that there are multiple examples in the Bible of it not being historically accurate. What I do think it, it can do, though, is it can communicate, um, especially through a variety of generations, of how people have struggled with the question of who or what is God um, and how we can see this larger um, kind of essence um, kind of compelling us to to love one another and work together with one another. And so what I say is, do I be- so do I believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? No, I think that there are errors in it. 
But I believe from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to Revelation, that's Revelation singular. Lots of people like to say Revelations. No, there's one Revelation. Really? But anyway, so Genesis 2 Revelation um, are all, um, there's a salvific thread is what I would say, running through it all. Oh, what? Salvific thread. As so in like, salvation? As in salvation, yeah. Okay. So what sets us free, right? So what gives us new life? What, um, what um, uh, opens us up to something that's beyond ourselves and beyond our own understanding? So there's a salvific thread. So like, um, you know, like in a, a tapestry, um, mm-hmm. a thread that runs through it all that we can see over and over and over again, that we can g- glimpse down to this is this essence of love and hospitality um, and also... Um, just reaching out across the divide, reaching out to the other. And I think, especially in America now more than ever, like realizing that like, regardless of who you voted for Trump or Hillary, like at some essence, we have to recognize that we're all human and that we all have these desires and that we all have these, um, we all have these yearnings and hopes, um, that are essential to being human. And so if we can get down to the bare essentials of what it means to be human. I think we can actually build bigger bridges there and then say, okay, like if this, if this is where we all are here, let's put this up a notch and how can we now work with, with all this, um, what it means to be essentially human. But, um, yeah. So I think that there, it can still speak truth in, um, without being historically accurate. And then like, the Bible is not one book, right? There are multiple books. And so some of them, we have the Psalms, which are actually songs, you know, and then we have some that Book of Numbers is more or less like census data. Um, and then we have things like Leviticus, which are like ritual rules and laws of the time. And then we also have like um, more mythical narratives, like the creation story. Um, and then we have like people trying to make understanding of like these um big events that are happening like Noah and the Ark a lot of uh, Mesopotamian cultures have some kind of story about this massive flood going on mm-hmm. so this is an, another understanding of of how we can understand um, what happened and so seeing at the end of that that this is this promise this at the end of the story of Noah right there's this this rainbow in the sky this promise this covenant that God will always be with us that even even if Water is going to wipe out the whole world. Here, here is new life. Here is salvation. Here is Noah and his family and all the animals still in the midst of disaster. We can get that glimpse of hope um, and that certainty um, that the God, that essence, that energy of life, that love, that compassion will continue to remain through it. So, yeah, and then and then you get you know the stories of Jesus and and we know some gospels talk about Jesus in different ways and so they're all trying to make their own arguments about you know what they're trying to emphasize and each writer is working and they're all writing um, you know across well I guess what seventy well ninety ish is when yeah so they're all writing across like thirty forty different years uh, which is a good long chunk of time mm-hmm. right and things are changing and uh mark is a great example of like the original ending of mark just ends with an empty tomb and then they kind of added some other stuff on they're like ah, we should probably add a little <laughs> bit more about what's going on here right like a hollywood so, producer give it yeah, a happy they're like, uh, okay make a gary marshall movie <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i mean i think uh yeah it, it doesn't need to be historically accurate to compel us um and to um also push us um, to recognize humanity of other people and also remind us that like 2,000, 5,000 years, like same questions that humanity has been having 
yeah. for thousands and thousands of years. And there's something, for me at least, very comforting in that. That like we've been asking these same questions. Do I think that that I, as a pastor or anyone, any theologian, is really going to be able to give me the answer? Absolutely not. But I do think that coming together in community of people and looking people in the eye and having conversations and just like pondering the larger issues makes me a better person and compels me to see people in a new way. So, and I think oftentimes we're now on computers and it's much easier to listen to a podcast, although you should keep listening, um, <laughs> listen to a podcast than to actually have a conversation with somebody. It's much easier to watch TV and be a critic of it than to try to create something new. Um, and I think part of what, what my understanding of God calls me to is to that uh, new creation all the time. How can we create something new and create something um, as community together? Now, uh, I'm curious, you, you alluded to our current national state um, and the, the sort of deep divide that I think a lot of people are feeling. Are you feeling that acutely in the church? Are you finding that that message might be more difficult to get across these days? Or yeah. that people are struggling with it more? I think, I think given um, how the election cycle went, regardless of, of who won, it was very much pointing the figure, finger at, at one another and being pretty, pretty critical, I mean, on both sides. Um, and I think what's interesting now is um, we've had a f- you know, there, there, there are a few people in this congregation and frankly, in congregations all across the nation, if not the globe, who are, who are thinking that although we are reading the exact same stories that we read every three years and that we're preaching essentially the same message that we have preached for thousands of years, that all of a sudden we're targeting Trump and mm-hmm. all of a sudden we're being political. And uh, while, no, we haven't mentioned Trump um, and... You know, we do, as people of faith, um, find that the scripture has political implications. Like, if welcoming all people and rec- welcoming the people who are different than you and are trying to see difference not as something that's fearful and dividing, but is actually something that's uniting and empowering, then, yeah, that's going to have something to say when we start talking about trying to do an us versus them thing. Like, it- yeah, if you have xenophobic rhetoric and the Gospels are constantly telling you to, like, welcome the stranger, then, yeah, it's going to be at odds with that. I'm I'm not sure what to say to that. This is not Pastor Jason or any pastor coming up. This is in the scriptures that you believe. <laughs> like, if you're going to be a Christian, we're upholding these scriptures. I, my job is to just hold up these stories and remind you of them and how you feel like that speaks to your conscience um, and how that compels you to... Um, put kind of feet um, to your beliefs is, is up to you. But my job is to hold it up um, as a mirror to you. And so I think more and more people are, are thinking that that's preaching against Trump or that that's, you know, being critical. And, you know, I, the refugee thing is a great example. I mean, Obama deported more people. Um, uh, well, so not even refugees, just like immigrants in general, mm-hmm. right? And undocumented immigrants like Obama did more deportations than any other president has before. And so, yeah, his he might not have been talking about it overtly against. I would say the same thing to Obama that I would say to Trump. Like, it, I could care less um, where you are um, partisan. What I do care about as a pastor is, like, what are the biblical values and how can we try to live that out? So 
It is much easier, though, I think, for a pastor to just kind of go with whatever status quo is. And there are plenty of pastors who don't want to ruffle feathers and want to make sure they keep getting their paycheck. And so it's much easier to just be like, you know, preach something very vague and very um, unrelated to real um, kind of social issues. But I think that, yeah. So in, in, the, in the Gospel of John, uh, the word belief back in the Greek is always a verb. It's never a noun. It's always a verb. So it's, it's active. Like belief is supposed to be active. This isn't something that we just ascribe to and we say, well, I believe in God. And then we leave it at period at that. And then we go on and, you know, we drink a beer. But like, no, like this, this compels you to do something. There's, there's feet. There's action that comes from this. And so I think if we're going to take it seriously, like I think you've got a couple different options. You can say like, oh, yeah, well, like the Bible is like a good story and I'm not going to take it seriously. And that, that was a nice story. Okay, that, that's fine. Totally, you can do that. Mm. But if you're going to take it seriously and if you're going to say like, this is compelling to me and this is going to motivate me, then I think you do need to take action. And so, yeah, I think you should be writing your politician. Now, I am not going to endorse a candidate or anything like that, but I do think that, um, at least from the pulpit or my pastoral role, mm-hmm. but I, I do think it should inform what you're doing. And so it does make it harder. And, and I think also in the context of Chicago, that tends to be... Um, a bit more liberal and democratic, uh, Democrat kind of supporting mm-hmm. that the few people who voted for Trump or voted for somebody else feel as though now everyone is against them and they're feeling alienated. And so, and I feel for that as well, right? Like that, I, I don't want that either. And so like, if I, if my bias is kind of creeping in as well, I want to be called out on that, but I also need to have a backbone and hold up what the scripture is saying. And so yeah, it makes yeah. it complicated. Sounds like it. So I didn't know, you mentioned earlier that you grew up in sort of a different sect of, mm-hmm. of Lutheranism. Lutheranism yeah. uh, when did you sort of make that switch and what compelled you to do that? Yeah, so I made the switch um, in college. Um, so I think I would say it was probably my second, third year. By my, by my senior year, I definitely was more firmly in it. And, and a lot of... A lot of it was kind of how the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod ended up taking their beliefs. So they're more of uh, biblical literalists. So they would say the Bible is completely inerrant. Everything that's written in there was written by the hand of God. There are no errors and um, would take any historical inaccuracies and try to like explain how they aren't inaccurate, that mm-hmm. they actually hold together. And so yeah, you can do that. And that wasn't really where I'm like, eh, that seems like more of a stretch to me. Hmm. Um, and then like the implications of the theology, I just didn't hold, think um, sat well with um, Christ's message of love and acceptance. And what so, do you mean implications? Of the yeah. So for example, we could say um, uh, common phrase, right? love love the sinner hate the sin right sure. so uh, and then that's used again you know saying uh talking about abortion or you could talk about um uh, at that point especially gay marriage was big or even just like in the elc and the lcms at that point both like um ordination of people in same gender relationships or you could um you could go on and on and on about how how we interact with the hungry how we interact with the homeless how, how we interact with refugees or how we interact with immigrants and so 
I just kept seeing more and more, the more that I studied um, about Jesus and kind of the, the life um, and ministry of Jesus, it's like, I just felt like the way that they were using theology to kind of live out their social um, kind of lens didn't fit with my understanding, A, of the world and B, um, of uh, Jesus' ministry. So, so yeah, so I kind of started making that transition. And I still remember uh, my, my freshman year, towards the end of it, I was asked to be on the campus ministries leadership team. And they had recently um, uh, decided that they were going to become um, RIC, so Reconciling Christ. So what this big title means is that um, they were open and affirming and welcoming and supporting people regardless of sexual orientation and gender identity. And so um, Pastor Priggy, um, who um, was, was at Augustine, I remember going into his office at the end of freshman year, and I sat down with him. I said, Pastor Priggy, I don't think you guys are doing the right thing here, like that you guys would become RIC. Like clearly in the Bible, like it says that you shouldn't do this. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that this is right. And um, he, he and I had this long conversation and he gave me some information. And I went back and did some more reading. And this was something that I can continue to like struggle with um, throughout um, my time um, at Augustana. And, you know, then there, by the time I get to senior year, I'm coming out myself um, and uh, also writing my kind of one of my papers for religion was looking at uh, kind of the, uh, I forget what I specifically zoomed in on, but it was basically looking at biologically um, same gender couples and rel- how religions um, and the biblical text understood um, uh, kind of same gender couples or same gender relationships. And so um, kind of looked at it from like this multiplicity of viewpoints and like you see over and over again, like in uh, the animal kingdom that like penguins and um, all sorts of different animals like end up partnering up in same gender. And it, it Actually, that in some different cases actually makes the um, the different uh, like groupings, depending on, you know, what flock here or it could be, uh, you know, like a brood over here. But it ends up making them um, like more welcoming and more like loving and more kind and uh, and that it has this lasting effect, not only um, on the couple, but on like the whole community. And so it was just really fascinating. And it just kind of blew my mind just like across the like all sorts of different animal species are like this and, and what that could mean. And uh, so then I, I think that like I went through that transformational process myself of figuring out my own identity and how that relates with this um, biblical tradition that I inherited, but then also what that looks like if I, again, like the Israelites, have been oppressed and am oppressed as a gay person in um, our whole global context, like, I need to constantly remind myself that although I am a white male and that has some kind of privilege to go along with it, I need to be careful how I use that because in other parts of my life, I'm also oppressed. And so it just constantly reminds me that um, I need to um, be aware of the oppression that I put on other people. I mean, even here, like as a supervisor, like it's very easy for me as a pastor to look at the church musician or um, the nursery attendant or the parish assistant and be like, no, nope, I'm the pastor. This is how we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. But it takes a lot more effort and uh, love and kindness to try to pull myself back. And I'm not always good at it, but try <laughs> to pull myself back and say, all right, like how can we do this all together? And like, I want to hear your opinions and I want, I want you to be a part of this and be invested in it. Um, that takes a lot more effort. And so, yeah, with with privilege and um, with power also comes 
a much larger responsibility to check ourselves um, and to, to be aware of how that impacts other people who aren't in that same situation. Mm. Now, was it, uh, I didn't, re- did you say that you came out senior year or the yeah, yeah. process? Yeah. Of? Okay. yeah. I didn't, yeah. I didn't At realize the end that. Of senior year, yeah. Um, was that, it was, it was still pretty, you know, hush, hush. There were sure. a few of my close sort friends, of out, you know, but like not out, out, I like peeked out the closet <laughs> sure, door and then sure. said, eh, you know, I'll keep thinking about this. <laughs> well, and at that point, I think I also, I was identifying as bi at that point. Oh yeah. You know, what, what was that? Was that a struggle for you? I mean, especially in the context that you were talking about with your, with your faith and the fact that freshman year or sophomore year or whatever, you went to Pastor Priggy and you, you know, yeah. <laughs> evangelized this other, this <laughs> other thing. So can you talk about that struggle? Yeah. I mean, some of it is just like, I mean, for a long time, it's, at least for me in my context, there, I didn't think of myself as different, really. Like, I didn't, there were no words or labels to kind of put with it. And also, like, gay people in generally were just, like, demonized um, and, you know. In your in, youth? In, 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 yeah, I would say in general, probably in, in my youth, Definitely, I, I felt it, if it was true or not, but I felt like um, religiously, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was also opposed to it. Mm-hmm. Like, you you could not identify as gay and be ordained, period, was my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then in the ELC at that point, you had to be, like, celibate, but you could identify as gay, but you couldn't, like, act on it or so. I don't know. And, yeah, so, and then that eventually changed in 2009, Um in the ELCA. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so part of it was coming to like, understand like the thoughts and the feelings that I was having, like, yeah, it might be that like, instead of this, like being somebody that I thought, like, I just wanted to be better friends with in like, you know, middle school or (laughs) high school, like that could actually probably be that like, I am attracted to this person and like want something more than just like some kind of like, odd deeper friendship um and stuff like that so that some of it is so and and it happened to be that i my that would have been what my junior year um uh, yeah my junior year um i started becoming friends with um uh two people at augustana um who were both in a relationship together so they're both um both uh so kyle and clyde are their names and i became close um with them and started to like realize and see more of what this looked like and it's like wow this isn't like it's really hard for me to say like to demonize these two people and like the love that they have for each other and the commitment that they have to one another like it's I and so then I started being like I don't know where people are getting this from like and then like hearing more of their stories and I'm like oh that's interesting that sounds a lot similar to like what I've got going on in my head and so like wrestling with this and figuring it out and then figuring out what what does that mean and what does that mean for my parents and like will I be encouraged to go to reparative therapy and you know what does that coming out process look like and um so and that was that was a long process that I feel like just over the past you know, year or two, I feel like now I feel more comfortable being like I'm out to my whole family and um, out here in the congregation and like, yeah, it's just, and so like definitely a a long journey, like what, 28 years to like 
come to a full understanding just of like sexual identity that like some people are just like innately born with and they can just be like oh like hey i like somebody of the opposite gender let's run with this and just kind of naturally happens so there's there's some of that is like then also like me mourning as well just like mourning the loss of like hey what what would it have been like if i had come to this understanding of myself and like gone through middle school and like could have like done like the weird dating like at a young age you know with somebody else or gone through high school and done that and like what would have been the good things what would have been the bad things and how would that have shaped me in a different way so yeah so and i and that's pretty natural i think for a lot of people who are in the lgbt community of like this kind of arrested kind of sexual development um and now all of a sudden like oh you know you're in your third or like for some people it's like oh now marriage is legal like you should want to get married it's like wow like for my psyche for so long (laughs) i was told that this was not possible and now all of a sudden you decide it's okay and now i'm forced like into this like i have a whole lot of like work to do in my psyche of like what this means and like and so and i don't and so if this is happening to me in this one narrow um, subsection where I feel like I'm kind of the outsider, then I imagine this has got to be a similar feeling for people of color in the United States of America or um, people who identify um, as a different gender than male or, I mean, we can go across the board, like so on and so on and so on um, of what that means um, to kind of be on the outside. But. Did you get any sort of pushback within the church as you were pursuing um, your education? Yeah, so... Um, so I entered seminary in 2008 and it was, it was really interesting because so at that point I couldn't be in a same gender relationship um, and be ordained in the ELCA. They had been like talking about this for like a really long time and 2009 was going to be the big vote. And so I, I sent in my seminary application and I made sure that I was out in it that I, but I, at that point, like I wasn't dating anyone like, could barely handle the idea that I was gay myself, never mind like somebody else saying that they were gay <laughs> and like trying to be romantically involved with me. Like that would be too much. So um, I was so, I still remember the day that I got a phone call um, from Louise Johnson, who was the director of admissions at the Philadelphia seminary at that point. And she, she called and she said, Hey Jason, we got your application and you know, um, we want to accept you. And, um, we'd also like to, um, you know, nominate you for the fund for leader scholarship. And she says, even, even if you don't, um, get their full scholarship, like we're going to pick it up. So you will have full seminary tuition, um, paid for by the ELCA. And I was like, floored and so i remember hanging up the phone and like crying because i'm in this in between of like wait i just i came out as gay i'm not really supposed to be in the elca but now the elca is gonna pay for me to go to seminary like what the hell is this like (laughs) did they miss that part of my application okay well whatever (laughs) and then like the next gay got a call from um the chicago seminary and they're like so we heard from philadelphia that they offered you full tuition we want to extend the same thing to you i was like what in the world is happening right now um and so um I was kind of on the fence about going to seminary at that point. I was kind of just like applying on the whim and it was like, eh, maybe this is something to do. And then at that point I was like, well, I mean, I don't really have that big of a financial risk. Like, yeah, let's go to Philadelphia <laughs> for a year. And like, worst comes to worst, I'll come home and, you know, yeah. figure out something else. So ended up, do, you know, going to Philadelphia and, um, you know, years down the road, it, it, it ended up being great and um, stuff like that. But yeah, it was, it was this kind of tension. And then I was the, I was a voting member to 
what we call the churchwide assembly in 2009. So they're like the highest legislative body in the ELCA that would make, was going to make the determination on like, could people be, um, uh, in a same gender committed relationship and be ordained. And so that was a whole, a whole nother kind of just like mixed bag because, so we needed to do this. We need to adopt this thing called the social statement, um, on human sexuality before we can move to then, or we can allow them to be ordained and in the LCA. And we needed a two thirds vote, um, of this, uh, social statement, um, to be adopted so that, um, then we could move on to like the next few questions. And so like, Lots of tension, lots of really just like mean things being said about gay people, you know, by some folks. And so we get to the vote and we finally do it. And like literally, I I will never forget this moment in my entire life. So we're in Minneapolis and huge assembly hall. And so you vote with these like little voting machines. And so the presiding bishop at that time, Mark Hansen, is like, all right, and you may now, you know, we've done all the debating, blah, 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 blah. And so we debated, you may now vote. And so you would either press one for yes or two for no. Everybody presses it, and you see this little thing ticking across the screen, and then he'll, he'll say voting is closed, and then he'll say, can I please see the results? So then he would see it on his screen, and then and then he would say, you know, show the results to all of us. So he says, may I see, please see the results? And then, um, and then, uh, and then he said, all right, he's like, he said, I'm going to let you all see the results, but then I need to step back away from the podium before I can declare winning. And so he, he says, please show them the results. And he shows it. It is exactly two thirds. <sighs> exactly. And literally there is an audible gasp in the room. <gasps> and so everybody is just like, and it's just silent. And everybody's like, what? So like, did we get it? Did we not? And like, he has to go and check with the parliamentarian and be like, so like, this is exactly two thirds. Like, this is good. Right. Or we, did we need more than two thirds? Like, and so it ended up being exactly right. And immediately, as soon as that passed, some people of course started clapping, but there was a group of people, there was two or three people right in front of me who immediately got up and left, um, and never came back. And I said, like, I was talking to people later. I was like, like, where do these people go? Um, and they said, oh yeah, they said that if this passed, they would leave the church and they would never be back. And they did, they got up, they left, they got on a plane and we'll never see them again. And so part of me is like, wow, like my personhood, like being ordained in this denomination makes people so fearful or frustrated or uncertain or shaken in some way. It's doing something to them so much so that they're going to leave behind a denomination that they have claimed as their own and go somewhere else. It just was heart wrenching for me and just tore it out, tore my heart out. And also just like partly mind boggling as well that like in this divisiveness that we, we can't find some common ground. And like eventually like if it was up to me, the policy that we have right now is like this, in between like loosey goosey like well if you want to call somebody who is ordained and gay like great and if you don't want to call somebody that's also great everybody wins and like i'm not sure that that's really being all that prophetic um it's like we're the term that we use is bound conscience which is a term that lutheran use so we're both bound to our own understandings of scripture and our understandings of god and we're compelled to recognize that the other person is bound to their own um, consciousness. Meaning that if someone wants to not accept a gay clergy member, mm-hmm. they are okay. Yep. There's no... They can do that. Okay. Yep. If a, if a congregation decided that they did not want to call them, they don't have to. Yeah. Which, I mean, 
it's frustrating in some ways, but also for me, who I would love to live in a city, makes it really easy because I know that I probably will never be called to North Dakota. Um, <laughs> and I'm totally cool with that. So I, I'm also sad because I think there are a lot of LGBTQ people who would do awesome in rural ministry in yeah. like North Dakota who are prevented from doing that. And I think we've got some room for growth there. But yeah. So uh, you went to philadelphia for school mm-hmm. and then was the plan to always come back to chicago was that always a, a goal of yours at least if not a plan yeah i i think i had always thought that i'd come back um to chicago at some point and so yeah so two years in philly and then i was a year in eastern pennsylvania and then two years in uh new haven connecticut and uh it was good it was good to like east coast is is different than the midwest there's not as many niceties and um i still remember the first time that i checked out like this little midwestern boy right like identifying kind of as bi at this point you know walking I'm like hi you know how are you and then it was like he's kind of like looked at me and like shoved everything over the like scanned all the barcodes through it and it was like 47 dollars and i'm like okay and paid him <laughs> and i'm like well i guess this is this is what you get out here and i just yeah. thought everyone was so rude um and uh eventually kind of got over that but that's just philadelphia it's a lovely place but I'm glad to be back. City of brotherly love my ass. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'm curious what you, th- what is the most difficult part of your job today? Both in terms of like the actual um, tasks of doing it and then sort of emotionally, mentally for you. What's, what's the most difficult? Yeah. <sighs> well, like task wise, I think, being a solo pastor at a smaller urban church. You're the only pastor. I'm the only pastor here. So, um, so I'm here. I actually was called here at 80% time and now I'm full time. Oh, okay. yeah. They couldn't afford full time. So Mm. they paid me 80% time and you know, I still worked 120%, but anyway, um, so now I'm technically full time and, um, we didn't really have much of a staff then. Now we've got a little bit of staff. Um, but with that means like I do a lot of weird things that I never thought that I'd do. Like I know more about like tuck pointing and boilers and like <laughs> porch maintenance and like all this weird stuff than I ever thought that I would know. Um, just kind of like the basics of, of trying to, to get things done. Um, so like the tasks are very diverse, which I do enjoy in some ways. I get to like learn new things and like always something keeping me going, but like trying to balance those priorities is always tricky. I mean, Sunday service always has to happen. So I've always got to have my sermon, always got to have all that done and then try to like slide in the other things. Um, So that like just balancing all that is tricky. And I think emotionally, um, I constantly have to remind myself that there is a diversity of beliefs and understandings and preferences of individuals in a congregation and my, and my job is not always, um, I try to help make my job a place where I can hold a vessel for all of that and try to be understanding of where there needs to be some correctives or some directives and kind of just presenting other ideas about kind of, beliefs and ideas of God or um, of scripture and stuff like that. And so I think that can be hard, especially in, in an urban environment where, where recently um, I would say 
we're to the point now where the majority of people who are coming and joining our congregation are not from the Lutheran tradition. So kind of saying, okay, like, well, this is what this means. And like, in a more historical Lutheran context, this is kind of where beliefs have been and this is how they are. And so the questions are very different. Like you have a Baptist come and they want to know like how they can get out of hell and how they can get to heaven. And it's like, well, that's not really a Lutheran question. Like Lutherans are more concerned about like love and grace and acceptance. Like that's more of our bread and butter. And like, it's a question. Yes, that is a question. And that is historically a Christian question in some ways, but it's just not our question. Um, and so like it requires me to also know a lot more about a whole variety of faiths that I don't necessarily ascribe to, Mm -hmm. um, but that I need to be aware of and try to connect with a bit. Um, and then just like constant criticism, right? Like criticism of, of preaching or my leading or stuff like that. And not, I think emotionally trying to make sure that I don't take that too personally, although being a three, I kind of do take that personally and at I times. Mean, even if you were, weren't the three, that's a tough thing to, you know, anyone who's get, just getting criticized, that's, that's gotta be tough. Yeah. Especially if, if it's not only your job, but you know, you've devoted your life to this. This is, this is a deeply held personal belief of yours. You're, you're doing something that you feel is important and right. And so to, to accept criticism, that's gotta be really tough. Yeah. 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 And so there's a, there's one a book uh, where an author talks about how like, um, creating a sermon um, is like giving birth that it's this constant like um, you know you start with this like um, this 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 just a little nugget and then you're constantly helping develop it and develop it and and create it and nurture it and build it up and then like this this giving of a sermon event is just like birthing and it's just like exhausting and you're just putting everything into it and doing that week in and week out and week in and I don't think that people always get how much like to be everybody always wants the pastor who's creative and funny and has a kitschy story and it's like has it like coming like biblical like deep biblical um work being done on it and that takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and so you know some people in a congregation just want pastors oh like and this is what I was told when I got here I said you know I'm 80% time. I'm not really, you know, I don't, I, I would like to have more Sundays off where I don't have to preach so that other people can come in. Well, no, we don't, we don't really want to do that. We really want to see the essence of your ministry as preaching and and presiding. And we don't have the finances to do that. And, And so I get like, that's part of what I'm supposed to be doing, like called to word and sacrament. So I'm supposed to be preaching and I'm supposed to be presiding at the sacraments, communion and, and, um, and baptism. But like, it's just absolutely exhausting. And so it's really helpful. Now I've got a pastoral resident who is just, he's phenomenal. He's great. And so he preaches every so often. And then I preach and it just, it really actually, I think makes me a stronger preacher to have some time off Mm -hmm. to develop more creativity, to do some more reading. Um, And so like emotionally to put all of that energy into preaching or to leading a service and then to have somebody just like nonchalantly, make a very short statement and not want to engage it. That's what about like, I'm more than happy to like have conversations about like, this is part of why I like went into this. I love having conversations about it and want to hear more about your perspective and stuff like that. But like to make a passive comment and then to not engage it is just super frustrating. Um, yeah. So I, I would say that that brings me the most kind of emo- like drains most of my emotional energy or just like the, the general, like just politics of a church, um, mm-hmm. which this congregation doesn't have too, too much of that, which is good. Um, but sometimes it's just like, 
who likes whom and you say someone you want the wrong thing to this one person and you know blah 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 um just like any other workplace just like any other workplace yeah yeah um so what is it what is it that drives you every day what what is it that gets you up and, and gets you going yeah so i think what gets me up and gets me going is that i hope at some level um through preaching and teaching and interacting with other people that i can um motivate um, people and inspire people to take action in their life, to love other people, to be reflective of what they're doing. And then also to like look honestly at their life as a whole and say like, is what I'm doing overall in my life um, meaningful in some way? Like when I open up my pocketbook, like the places where I'm spending money, like is it like if somebody were just if, if I were to pass away and somebody were to look at my pocketbook and they were to look at my day planner, would they be able to look at that and say, this is what gives Jason meaning or this is what gives Nick meaning? Like or would they just look at it and be like, oh, well, like he liked these things. Um, and so I think we can use our time and our money um, to indicate um, what gives us meaning and to propel the world forward. And so I think getting outside of ourselves, I think spirituality is really just a, a cover for saying it's not all about us, but how can we look larger at the world and how can we look at larger principles and, and larger ideals and um, really step into them? And then how can we also be challenged by other people to go even wider? And that's where like, yeah, any good faith community should have a little bit of tension in it so that we can push ourselves a little bit. Um, and uh, so I hope that, that I can create a place where we can hold some of that tension, where people can be pushed and they can meet new people and they can be challenged um, and also where they can get the affirmations when they need it so that then they can live out the larger things that kind of motivate them. And my hope would be is that what motivates them is um, loving God, loving self and loving neighbors. Um, and I think, I think sometimes we, so that's the great commandment, right? Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, love your neighbor as yourself. And I think we often forget that in that formula, it's the implication is that you need to first love yourself before you can love another individual. And I think at least in where I was brought up, love of the other person and being so overly self-sacrificial to your own detriment was what was prioritized and finding that balance. How can we find all three of those and try to keep them in balance? And so, yeah, sometimes it's healthy, you know, to say, Hey, I need a night to myself or I need to do my own thing. Um, and so trying to keep that all in balance, um, so that we can live a more holistic life is what hopefully gets me up. So how can we use the scriptures? How can we use this this ancient tradition, thousands of years, people have been asking these same questions. How can we learn from them, be inspired by them? And then how can I help create a place where I can make easy avenues with the other people in the congregation for people to live that out? So how do you go about, how do you go about achieving that? How do you go about doing that? It sounds like a tough balance to strike. Yeah. I mean, so what the, the nice thing about being in a denomination like the ELCA who ascribes to what's called, recalled uh, the revised common lectionary is that every single um, Sunday and every week already has like biblical readings picked for me and like has different focus, like has a different focus uh, that we're narrowing in on. So right now in the, in the church, we're in the season of Lent. Um, and after the season of Lent comes Easter. And these seasons are a part of a whole liturgical season. And the whole year, the whole liturgical year is um, our kind of Christian prayer. And our Christian prayer in that is that if you, 
chart it all out and I won't go through it all with you. But if you ever want to go through the new member class, then we'll, be a we'll chart it all episode. out. That'll sure. be a second episode, yeah. Um, our prayer is is that essentially we know, like Lent, where we're in right now, like there are going to be shitty, sucky times of our life. There are going to be times where we're going to hit rock bottom, where things aren't going to be going well. We're going to be like, what? the hell happened with my life things aren't going well in my relationship or in my work and it's just like crappy and in those moments often we have to figure out like well what are the most important things in my life and how can I refocus them and how can I get back to the basics as my therapist would often say who would remind me to go okay in those moments where things are going to hell in a handbasket what are the basics what we just need to take care of that right now and get through that on the daily level and then so that's 40 days um, and then we have this season called Easter, which is right after it, which is 50 days. And we have the season of Christmas, which comes right after Advent. And Christmas and Easter are those moments of like joy and excitement. And what we say in that prayer is that 50 is greater than 40. So we hope and we pray that those, those high moments of life where things are going really well, where we love our job, where relationships are going really well, where we're having a lot of fun with friends and family, that that helps to outweigh all of the shit in life. Mm-hmm. And then there's also those moments like Advent where we just hope and we yearn for something something new where we're we're not really in the rock bottom and we're not really in the joys but like we're just yearning for something different and we're hoping and we're praying and then there's the green season which is like time after pentecost time after epiphany which is just the season of growth because there are just times in our life where we get up we have coffee we take a shower we go to work we do our work we come home we eat dinner we go to bed we get up we make coffee we take a shower go to work and like that's just life like we just there's Nothing all that exciting. There's nothing bad about it. There's nothing all that good about it. There's just just the growth in between. And so and and that's the longest time of our church year. And so each each day when I wake up as a pastor and I plug into whatever the season is, I can help focus people in, okay, where are we right now? We're in Lent. Let's focus on those moments where like shit sucks and like what is that like and like how do you get through that and what are the what are the what are the things that we can hang on to to help us get through that um what can we ground ourselves in to help us um get into that so that kind of naturally just helps my rhythm and flow of seasons as a pastor and then then you can just build on top of that right so if that's kind of the liturgy essence then we can say okay so if that's like the hard time then like what are the other things that we can think about or do in the life of the church that can help focus us on Lent. And then when we get to Easter, how can we focus on that? How can we focus on the new life and the resurrection and how like, yeah, shit has to suck before it can get better. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes things need to die and that brings new life. Um, And so every, you know, beginning is also a new ending. And how can we hold that all into tension um, with one another? So for me as a pastor, it all goes back to the liturgy. It all goes back to that worship and what's focusing us there. And then it can build out. It sounds like you, Correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like this helps you as a person too, not just oh, as a pastor. A doubt. It seems like it, it guides your life. Yeah, as a person. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I th- I I think that it's it's a really helpful mentality because sometimes when, especially when we're in the shitty times of life, we get so like narrow focused in that, and we just need to take those blinders off and be like, okay, yeah, this sucks now. This is no fun. I hate this, and it's not everything. Yeah. And that's I think helpful where the liturgical cycle is. It's not it's not everything. Yeah, therapy helps too. It's a good thing therapy we, we both have a, well. the same good therapy. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, I would like to wrap up a uh, a couple a couple uh, extra a couple last questions. You mentioned earlier that sort of heaven and hell is not something that you ascribe to. So, what is your um, what are your thoughts on what happens when when we die? Yeah, so good question. So, um, first, I want to say that. Um, 
no matter like as a pastor, I think I part of my role, like as a chaplain, is to like step into where people's own kind of spirituality or thoughts like an are. Empty vessel of sorts. Of sorts, yeah. Um, and so, I am not entirely sure what happens to us after I die. Do I think that there is a physical or kind of uh, physical location or some place that we go that's that's like heaven or hell? No, I don't really think so. Um, what I do know, and I do believe firmly, is that um, uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So nothing can separate us from this, uh, this root energy, this force of love um, and of grace and of acceptance. Nothing can separate us from that, regardless of if it's death or life. So... Even in death, I do believe that there's an, an essential energy of love and acceptance and grace. I have no idea what that looks like. And frankly, if it just means that I go into the ground and that's it, lights are off, it's over, I'm okay with that. Uh, totally okay with that. Because um, I think that my faith compels me to do more here on earth than about like doing the right things to get somewhere. But it's actually salvation for me The is is a life-changing moment now. It's about realizing something different now. It's about being open to newness. It's about being set free that I don't have to worry about doing all those right things, but I'm um, uh, set free to just do the best that I can now um, and uh, in, in the world that I am right now. I also, after I die, want to really, really have a green burial. And so I want to be burned up and I want to be put in one of those little pods where the tree grows from it. So I hope yeah. that after I die that I turn into a tree um, <laughs> and that I help, you know, the rest of the world create oxygen uh, that we will badly need after some of the changes to EPA. Are coming. Sure. Yeah. Let's uh, wait to end it on a downer note. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. Ask me another question. <laughs> okay. Uh, more fun question. Uh, this I'm fascinated by this question for everyone and now, especially that I'm, I'm talking with a, a man of faith. Do you believe in ghosts? Do I believe in ghosts? Yeah. Mm. No, not really. No, you don't have any good ghost stories or anything. This no. is kind of a, a, like, I assume you might be here at night by yourself sometimes. Yeah. And, and that's why that's I don't believe creepy. in ghosts. Yeah. yeah. It would I've never seen one here. Oh, okay. I feel like if I were going to see a ghost somewhere, it would be here and I've never seen one. No. Yeah. So I was actually reading this interesting article um, about how, the, the level of like uh, ghost sightings in um, like 21st century has been lower than any other time in history. And what they were trying to argue is that like our brain kind of tricks us like when we're bored and we don't have any other things to like see ghosts or other things. So now that we've got like so many things that we can watch all the time, we don't see ghosts as much i don't know i think it's a fascinating uh-huh. story i love hearing like ghost stories to, like hear best? like the history of yeah. things and like who died here and stuff like that but yeah. i don't know that i really believe in like seeing something yeah i don't know that i believe in it either i just like talking to people about it you know <laughs> sometimes people have a really good ghost story occasionally yeah. i had one guy on the podcast who had he was like he, he had a couple of ghosts in his house. One walked right through him, and I'm like, "What is happening?" So, just wanted to check that out. So, thank you, Jason. Thank you You're for welcome. talking with me. This was really fun. I really appreciate you opening up and telling me about your your journey, your life, and and your your work. I, I had a lot of fun with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, cheers. <laughs>